welcome back to Codes and Chaos. I'm your host, Cece. This is a podcast that is open to everyone that will be full of rants, raves, and crazy stories from the medical community. I hope we can laugh together while we also support each other. Please take a minute to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you can get your dose of my sarcasm, humor, and real-life stories. I do apologize for the delay in publishing this episode, but honestly, folks, it has worked out to our advantage because I have some closure on one of the stories I'm going to tell today. Um, Today is basically going to be some random thoughts and musings from the hospital and the ED. So it's been a fun game for my coworkers to spot my uh, tweaked details and my acute stories that I do to protect, protect patient information. Even one of our primary charge nurses who never remembers anything about anything remembered the damn weekend at Bernie's patient. She said to me that she thinks her bad work memory is a coping mechanism, and I think I may be starting to develop that coping mechanism as well. Um, I wish on a shooting star every shift that I develop alarm fatigue, but nope, I still hear every damn beep in a 20-foot radius, monitors, pumps, vents, call bells. But I have started to experience what I am calling work blackouts. Um, People will say something to me about something I said at a training or a meeting, and I totally don't recall saying it, probably because it wasn't significant to me. But then last week, I had a doctor come up to me and say, Hey, do you remember that elder abuse patient that we had last year? And I told her, No, I don't have any recollection of a elder abuse patient and that it probably wasn't me she said no it was you because you charted in her record so she says well here let me show you some pictures maybe that'll jog your memory nope still nothing so she says but you helped me to stage these pictures and so I made a joke that well I'm glad I don't have to testify in court about this person because I don't remember them at all And the doc says, well, that's why I'm bringing her up, because I did testify in court, and I wanted to tell you that they found the daughter guilty of elder abuse, and that's significant because it rarely happens. And they used the pictures in court that you helped me take. Well, folks, I still don't remember her at all, but I suppose I had a part in some actual justice, so that's nice. Now let me ask you folks something. Are you superstitious at work? Because I would not have considered myself superstitious until I started working as a nurse. Now, I'm going to start out talking to you non-medical folks. You do not ever want to say, wow, it's quiet in here today, or it's slow in here today, inside the confines of a hospital. Because when you do, your nurse now hates you. A puppy dies, and the devil is granted a wish, and that devil's wish usually comes through our ambulance bay doors. I will legit get pissed off at people. I'm not saying it's rational, but I honestly cannot control my immediate annoyance when patients or family members make some form of those statements, especially because nice days are few and far between and usually happen after a succession of complete dumpster fire days and the universe knows that we can't handle another awful day and that we deserve a short respite. Another common superstitious practice in the emergency department to ward off bad omens is to always put your questionable cardiac patients on the life pack. Look, 
In Hocus Pocus, the kids made a circle of salt around themselves to prevent the Sanderson sisters from getting to them. In the ED, we used the life pack to try to ward off the fucking Grim Reaper. You're welcome. Another superstition that I personally have, but I don't know if other people share in this, is when you're on call, you don't talk about on call because it makes you get called in. You don't talk about Fight Club and you don't talk about on call. First thing, or excuse me, funny thing is that this past Sunday, I was on call and I did something that I've never done before when on call, which was to leave my house briefly to go somewhere nearby. Now, admittedly, I got cocky because I had been told that we had flexed two nurses home that day. So I was liking my odds. Welp, things began to pick up, and then one of those flex nurses got into a motor vehicle accident and couldn't come back to work when they needed them back at work, so I got called in. Now, I am happy to report that that nurse is fine. Um, I worked with her on Wednesday, and I learned that my time of deciding to leave my house correlates to the time of her motor vehicle accident. And so this will be solidifying my superstitious around on-call. And yes, I did apply, I did apologize to that nurse like four times for real. Sorry, Marissa. Okay. Now five. Another random thing that amazes me about our job is the things that we will touch with thin nitrile gloves on, the thickness of which comparatively feels like the thickness of standard printer paper. I mean, they're thin enough that we can feel the texture and viscosity of what it is we are touching, yet there we are touching some really nasty shit, usually bodily fluids of some sort. And I feel like if you know what I'm talking about right now, then you don't want me to continue talking about it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then I know you don't want me to keep talking about it. So that's all I'm going to say about that. And does anybody else use chest compressions during CPR to gauge just how out of shape you are? And I'm not talking about the quarterly save a mannequin two minute chest compressions. No, I'm talking about the real deal. You know, standing on the wobbly stool, feeling ribs break between your hands while four other people are quickly working their jobs around you too. A while back, I was utterly disgusted by how quickly I tired out while doing chest compressions and then how long it took my heart rate to return to normal. So I started playing some racquetball once a week and doing some other random cardio stuff here and there. Don't worry, didn't last very long. But I will say that uh, the last few times I've done compressions, I felt a whole lot better. So maybe that was just an off day. I don't know. We had an incident at our hospital a while back with a patient that coded while being decontaminated outside by, before being brought inside the hospital. And one of our nurses gained the nickname the Human Lucas because of her stamina for doing very long round of effective chest compressions. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Lucas, it's this machine that can be attached to a patient to mechanically perform chest compressions on a person. Now, I recently learned that the American Heart Association requires that a first responder do the first 10 minutes of chest compressions in a code because humans are still more effective, um, are still more effective. But after those first 10 minutes, I'm sure it's real nice to be able to place a properly placed Lucas on a patient for transport to the hospital. Um, I know I've asked for the Lucas because I could just continuously feel ribs breaking underneath my hands and it's just not a great sensation. 
Um, but the Lucas is great not just because, you know, humans get tired, um, but it also makes the patient a lot easier to maneuver downstairs or around corners without a person crowding one side of an EMS stretcher or being extra weight atop a patient while they're doing compressions. So for frame of reference, a Lucas with its battery pack weighs approximately 20 pounds. Okay, next random thought. Does anyone else find it utterly ridiculous when a heavily tatted guy whines that they hate needles when you go to place an IV in their arm? I usually call them out on it, honestly, and I always get the same answer of, it's different. Well, that may be true, but I have been tattooed twice in my life. I've had countless blood work over my decades. I've had a handful of IVs over my decades. And unless you're a really hard stick, an IV is an uncomfortable pinch or poke, and then you're done. Maybe you continue to have a dull ache from the catheter, but no big deal. To me, being tattooed feels like being stung continuously by a bee for like one to two plus hours, however long it takes, and then you're sitting still for it. And then that stinging sensation usually lasts another hour or two afterwards. Look, just because they call it a tattoo gun, people, don't forget that there's actually a bunch of needles in there. I think you guys are psyching yourselves out, honestly. But let's move on. So recently, one of our well-tenured nurses told me that she and her nursing professor buddies all have the phone number of each other's spouses because none of the nursing professor's spouses work in healthcare and they don't have a clue about anything medically related. So if something happens to one of them and they're unable to make decisions for themselves, the spouses are to use the nursing professor friends as resources and sounding boards because they not only understand the medical world, but they all know what each other would and would not want done to them. I thought about this quite a bit for a few days and I realized what a brilliant idea it is. Not only does it help to take some of the burden off of the family member who's confused and overwhelmed, but then your healthcare friends get the satisfaction of helping you out in your time of need and helping you to avoid a horrible existence. Because folks, maintaining as a vegetable on a vent in a nursing home, dying a slow death from bed sores and organ shutdown isn't living. It's existing and is a healthcare worker's biggest fear. So I swapped phone numbers between my sister and my work wife if anything ever happens to me. They've never met, um, but I'm sure it won't matter. They'll come together, decide how freaking fast they can pull that damn cord and be done. No, I'm, but seriously. It is terribly overwhelming for family members to make those decisions when they haven't seen what we've seen and they don't know that there are worse things than dying. So if you don't have that support system set up for you and your circle, um, I would definitely consider it. A while back I had three vastly differing patient scenarios that would sort of drive this point home. Um, the first was a very elderly and frail and bedridden man that was brought in from home where he lived with his family for abdominal pain. He was a hard stick and so unfortunately he was stuck about five or six times for an IV before I finally put in bilateral 20 gauge IVs in ankles uh, near his, excuse me, in veins near his ankles. And during that time he had been awake and he had been yelling at us to stop that he didn't want any of this done to him. 
And then he started to decline. And I was saddened to see that he, even in his advanced age and advanced state, was still full code status. As soon as his son arrived, I um, started asking the son if he really wanted his father to be a full code because if we do chest compressions on him, we will break his ribs. Not if, we will break his ribs due to his age and frailty. The son was completely clueless and said, eh, it's fine, just keep it as it is. Now the patient is declining to the point that we have to move him to a trauma bay so that we have more room and more resources at hand. The attending has a conversation with the son now about that his dad's heart is old and tired and it'll never improve and is he sure that he wants to keep his dad a full code where we would intubate him and he probably would never be able to come off of the vent. And the son says he doesn't know that he needs to contact his siblings. About 10 to 15 minutes later, as the attending is putting in a central line, I go to the family re waiting room to see if the son has contacted his siblings to change the code status. And he says he's texted them, but that he hasn't heard back from them. I don't know if this guy is like completely clueless or if he's in denial, but I tell him like, this is not a texting situation. This is a blow up your siblings phone until they answer situation. And I tell him his father's trying to die within the hour. And honestly, that was being generous. Um, I go back into the patient's room. Now we're talking about intubating the patients. And one of my texts uh, is rightfully pissed and just keeps saying, this is bullshit. Like, this guy deserves to die with dignity. And I'm getting pretty frustrated um, as well. So, you know, he didn't want to have IVs in when he could talk. Now we're about to put a tube down his throat and break his ribs, all really for his inevitable death. Um, at best, all we can buy this man is a few hours, maybe days. It just feels terrible as a healthcare worker, but you have to honor the family's wishes. So just before the resident goes to intubate the patient, I ask for one more minute. And I walk to the son one more time and ask him rather firmly if he is able to make a decision regarding his father's code status. And he supposes that he can. So in the end, he still insists on intubation, but I do get him to agree to stop before chest compressions. Um, the patient died soon after his intubation because his blood pressure was already in the toilet and the RSI, or rapid sequence intubation drugs, quickly undid all the efforts that we had made to improve his blood pressure. As I left the room, I did approach the son and I said, I'm sorry for your loss, but you made the right decision. And for a little while, I felt bad for being so firm with the son while he was trying to deal with his father dying. But in the end, I know that I advocated for my patient, and that is a huge part of this job. My second scenario is pretty much the opposite of this last story. I had a patient who had been in a skilled nursing facility for a couple of months for rehab, but just really wasn't improving enough to be able to go home. And he had been brought in overnight for low O2 sats, which had been rectified with him being put on a BiPAP machine. In morning shift report, I was told that he was going to be going back to the skilled nursing facility, but then, uh, unfortunately, his O2 sat started dropping again. And unbeknownst to me, an hour or so 
after that, a conversation was had between his pulmonologist and his wife where the doctor had explained that the patient would only be able to maintain his O2 sets from now on if he stayed on the BiPAP machine continuously. So for you non-medical types, I'm going to explain what I just said quickly in layman's terms so as not to bore the people who already know what I just said. O2 sats is the oxygen saturation measurement of how much oxygen um, is in your blood. And generally you want a patient satting somewhere between 94 to 100%. That can differ based on uh, patient medical factors, but we're keeping it simple today. If you have sleep apnea and you actually treat it, then you know what a CPAP machine is. A CPAP or continuous positive air pressure machine is a machine that uses mild air pressure to keep breathing airways open, usually while you're asleep if you have sleep apnea, but it can be also be a useful tool for respiratory therapists for patients when they're awake. Now a BiPAP machine looks very similar to a CPAP machine. Um, the patient still has a mask on their face and still has pressure, but the difference is that for people who have trouble fully exhaling, they tend to retain carbon dioxide. So instead of a continuous air pressure like the CPAP gives, the BiPAP lowers the air pressure when the patient exhales to assist them in fully exhaling and ridding their lungs of CO2. So I found out that the spouse had decided to make my patient comfort care. And after speaking with uh, his doctor, and then being told that he would have to maintain wearing the BiPAP, and she knew that he would not want that. So comfort care meant that the BiPAP machine would be removed, and then he would be made comfortable with good drugs like morphine and Ativan while his respiratory system gradually shuts down and he eventually passes away. As soon as I entered his room, the spouse is immediately looking for reassurance from me that she made the right decision. So I talked to her about why she made the decision. And basically by speaking to me, I allow her to agree with herself again and see that it is in the patient's best interest for various reasons. I medicated the patient for comfort. Respiratory takes him off the BiPAP and places him on a simple nasal cannula and we both leave the room. A little bit later, the spouse comes and finds me at the nurse's station, and she asks me to come back into the room. She doesn't really have anyone else uh, to talk to about this, and she's looking for more reassurance that she made the right decision, asking me, is there any chance that maybe he could bounce back? And so I reminded her what the doctor had said, and that she, you know, had told me that her husband wouldn't want to live on a BiPAP mask um, all the time, and then tells... She then tells me this anecdote about their marriage, to which I responded with a funny anecdote about my grandparents' marriage, which she found hilarious. So after she has a good laugh, she thanks me. She says she just needed a good laugh and that she feels much better now. Soon after that, um, I took him up to the oncology floor where he eventually passed away. But it was heartwarming to know that she had chosen a peaceful death for him instead of forcing him to live a miserable bed-bound life in a skilled nursing facility on a BiPAP machine that he hated. 
My last example is an event where a patient coded in in transport to our hospital from another hospital. And so we assumed care of the patient from the transport crew and started coding uh, this man. And the paramedic on the transport crew told us that he had met the spouse at the other hospital and that she was pretty well put together and suggested that we bring her into the room. So we did. As soon as she entered the room, she asked us to stop our CPR efforts. She tells us that he has cancer and that he's in pain all the time and he would not want this. Now, the doctor in charge doesn't tell us to stop immediately, so we do continue our efforts um, for a few more minutes. Um, But then the spouse adds... It's not that I don't appreciate what you're doing, because I do, but we've been married for decades, and he's tired, and he hurts all the time, and I know that he would not want this. So the doctor finally told us to stop our efforts, and folks, that was a good and loving spouse that made a difficult but necessary decision on the spot, and everyone in that room had so much respect for her. All right, well, that's enough about death and dying, eh? Um, I had planned to avoid that this week and then somehow ended up there anyways. I don't know. I had a coworker say to me the other day, I hope you have a crazy day today. And I'm like, what? Why? And she's like, oh, I hope you have a crazy day today so I can hear you talk about it next week on your podcast. Okay, thank you, I think. Um, let's not make it too crazy, but I will tell you about it here when it happens. So far, as of today... I have 43 Facebook followers. I'm even getting followers now whose names I don't know and who don't actually live locally. So welcome. I hope you enjoy Codes and Chaos. I also have 153 downloads as of today from all over the United States and even a few downloads from outside the United States. So thank you all so much to everyone who has supported this venture. I appreciate you very much. All right, so time to wrap things up. Um, Still no one has come forward yet asking me to promote their side hustle. So today I'm going to promote one of my favorite helping apps. It's called Be My Eyes. And honestly, I'm promoting it for awareness uh, for you to suggest to friends, families, and patients that are sight impaired. So I first read about it in an article in October 2022 and downloaded it. It's basically a free app for sight-impaired people to sort of one-way FaceTime a volunteer to ask them a sight-impaired question like, which of these sweaters is red? What is the expiration date on my medication bottle? The only call that I've been able to answer, I was asked if both lights on some huge machine panel were both green. When I first read about the app, they had like a few hundred thousand sight impaired people and a little over two million volunteers. Now they have almost 600,000 sight impaired participants and over seven million volunteers. And that's awesome. But it also means that you rarely get a call. And when you do, you have to be lightning fast and answering it or another volunteer gets to it first. I honestly can't remember um, when the last time I got a call from Be My Eyes, but I often forget to mention it to my sight impaired patients. So I'm hoping that by talking about it here, it will help me remember it. And then also, I hope that I'm giving you all another tool for your belt as well. And of course, as always, I will put a link on it, uh, on the Facebook page. And as always, I would love to hear from you guys. 
either via email, codesandchaospodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook. I feel like this will be a lot more fun if it's interactive. And folks, I'm going to be delivering content every other Tuesday for a bit. Um, These episodes actually take a lot of preparation on my part, and I also work full-time. And like in life, I want this to be quality over quantity. I hope you'll understand, um, but so don't expect the next episode to drop until Tuesday, February 6th. If I can throw in a bonus episode here and there, I definitely will. Um, But for right now, we're going to go to bi-weekly. All right, and lastly, shout out to the late, great Maya Angelou, who said, you may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. And I know that quote hits hard for a lot of us. So be well, everybody. See you next time, and stay safe out there.